Uh, our scripture reading for today um, comes out of Mark chapter 8, 27 through 33, and I'm going to be reading from the Common English Bible Version, but please feel free to follow along on the screen or in your own Bible translation or language uh, of your preference. Mark chapter 8, 27 through 33. Jesus and his disciples went into the villages near Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They told him, Some say John the Baptist, other, others Elijah, others one of the prophets. He asked them, And what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus ordered him. Then Jesus began to teach his disciples, The human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the legal experts, and be killed. And then after three days, rise from the dead. He said this plainly. But Peter took hold of Jesus and scolding him, began to correct him. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, then sternly corrected Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and thank you that your word um, is alive and breathing through the Holy Spirit among your people um, to move us, to inspire us, uh, to renew us, to transform us. to call us into uh, your vision um, and uh, to call us into change. And so may our hearts be receptive uh, to your word. And uh, may I be a humble vessel uh, for what you want to do among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I am that uh, when you take personality tests, you're very skeptical of personality tests and you don't want to be put in a box, right? So uh, I'm a four, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a four on the Enneagram, which is creative, individualist, right, original. And so, you know, think of your artists. Not actually at our national uh, pastors conference, uh, they did an Enneagram kind of sesh workshop and in this humongous room, where it's the same room we worshipped in, there are different tables with all the Enneagrams. It goes one through nine. And there, there are multiple four tables, but I was the only four, like, in the whole room. And so that was kind of, it actually made me really proud and happy. Like, I am the only four, right? So I'm the type of person uh, that, you know, likes to be different. Um, and so... What I don't like is being labeled or put in the box or said, oh, you're this and you're this and you're this. And so in my elementary years growing up, uh, much of my elementary years were in Dallas, Texas, in the suburbs of Dallas, and probably the only second generation Korean American kid in my neighborhood. And, uh, you know, going to school and stuff, people would meet me and, you know, I'd say, you know, obviously I'm Asian, I'm different, and they'd say, you know, oh, do you know karate? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Or they'd say, can you help me with my math? 
And actually, I, I could help them with my math, but I was still upset. It's like, not all Asians are good at math. I'm good at math, but not all Asians are good at math, right? So, not all Asians know Kung Fu, um, but, right? Um, so, anytime that I was labeled or stereotyped, you know, it made me upset. And I think all of us, you know, in one way or another, resist that. Resist that. I can remember uh, when I was thinking about church planting and uh, talking to, you know, the big wigs in the, in the conference and the denomination uh, about church planting. And they were like, that's great. We need more Asian churches. We need, are you going to do a Korean church? And I know I've shared this before, but it was like, no, I, I want to do, I want to pastor a multi-ethnic church. You know, I want to pastor a church, whoever comes. But it's always like that. In college, I remember my friends would always point out the other Korean person. Like, oh, you should go ask her out. It's like, just because she's Korean, I should, we should date, right? Like, why can't I, you know, be with this person or that person or this person? So the whole idea of people taking who you are, labeling you, and putting you in a box can be upsetting. And I think that's a fun, those are illustrations, but this is kind of the, dyna the dynamic that's happening in this passage, right? Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And there's all kinds of answers that they give him. Some say John the Baptist in verse 28, others Elijah, so others one of the prophets. Right? Who is Jesus? Who is this great teacher who teaches with authority and does all of these miracles and work moves and power? Um, and preaches good news uh, to the poor, captive. Um, and then, after the disciples say all of these people, these people that uh, uh, people are saying that Jesus is, in verse nine, uh, 29, he turns to them and asks them, hold on, i got to slow down, because I'm talking too fast for my, my mind. They told him, uh, and he asked them, what about you? Who do you say I am? Right? And Peter answers, You are the Christ. And Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone about them. And a lot of uh, commentators, a lot of uh, biblical scholars uh, point out that this section, this verse, Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You are the, Peter saying, You are the Christ. And recognizing Jesus as the Messiah and the Christ is the center of the Gospel of Mark. It is like, it, this is what Mark pivots on. So um, if you were to break Mark up into two parts, we're, so we're at the halfway point. Mark 1 through 8 up, in, up into this point is all about Jesus and his authority, Jesus' identity. He's being challenged by the religious leaders. Who are you? What kind, by what authority do you do this? Do you do this? Do you cast out demons? Do you heal on the Sabbath? Right? They're challenging his authority. They're challenging his identity. But at the beginning of Mark, it says this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Right? From the get-go, we as readers are given the answer to the story. Right? Jesus is the Messiah. We know who Jesus is. So when we get to this midpoint where Peter is saying, you are the Christ, he's saying what the reader already knows. And we're finally like, yes! Jesus is the Messiah. You got it, Peter. Right? And then other, you know, other commentators talk about how Peter is the first human being 
to recognize and say that Jesus is the Messiah, right? The human being to say, you are Jesus Christ. Woo! Right? And so, Peter answering, you are the Christ. And then Jesus, in his kind of mysterious ways, says, don't tell anyone about this. Right? You're right, Peter, but don't tell any, anyone about this. This is, a, this is more of that messianic mystery, the messianic secret, right? Jesus, when people recognize Jesus as the Messiah or Jesus as the Son of God, he's kind of like, but keep it on the DL, right? That's a lot of information. People can't handle that full amount of information without kind of messing it up, without saying, oh, Jesus must know Kung Fu, right? Like, that's, that's wrong. So, or I'm not ready yet. The time isn't fulfilled. It's not the pregnant moment. It hasn't to know because that's TMI for this point right and so Peter's like you are the Messiah you are the Christ and all the other disciples on the side are like because Peter's kind of been slowly be elevating himself as the disciple right you have the 12 disciples then you have the three disciples and then Peter's like supposed to be the one so they're like I imagine them on the side, like brown noser or teacher's pet, like always has the right answer, rah, 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 right? Um, but then Jesus kind of, kind of moves forward, moves on with his explanation. Jesus begins to teach the disciples, verse 1, the human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and legal experts. And he said this plainly, right? The human run, the cry, I'm going to have to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be killed. I'll rise again, but all these things must happen first. And he says this very directly, very pain, plainly. And Peter, it says, took a hold of Jesus and scolding him, began to correct him. No, 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 this isn't it. And I wonder what Peter is thinking, right? Why is he correcting Jesus? Why is he scolding Jesus? By what kind of paradigm or viewpoint is, does he feel that Jesus is in the wrong saying, I must suffer first? And I think it's because the disciples and many of Jesus' followers still hold the the misconception that the Messiah, Jesus, even as he's the prophesied Messiah and come for the consolation of Israel, right? That that is by some military might, right? Some overthrowing of Rome, of the empire, some, some kind of force like Jesus, finally, we've been oppressed. We've been sitting under the thumb of Caesar and finally, the Messiah has come. He's going to be king of the Jews. He's going to come, and we're going to march down and glory after some military defeat, some military victory. And so there's this kind of, um, in their following Jesus, they're kind of following their uh, perception or kind of dream or vision of uh, secular glory, secular power. Right, an overthrow of the powers that be. I think that's true. I think God, that's ultimately God. But it's not 
not going to look like, and it's not going to be timed the way that humans think. And this is what Jesus means when he turns, looks at the disciples, and then sternly corrects Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan! You are not thinking God's thoughts, but humans' thoughts, right? So how does Peter go from teacher's pet brown noser, right? Number one disciple to you are the manifestation of Satan. Get away from me. That's like a far fall, right? And the other disciples who are envious are like, <laughs> right? They're laughing now because Peter <laughs> messed up, right? And, um, and I think it's because uh, because of the whole idea that we misappropriate, right? The disciples, Peter, are uh, misappropriating who Jesus is. Like, we, he's rightly saying, yes, you are the Christ. And he's the first human to declare Jesus Christos, the Messiah. And Jesus is like, that's right, that's right. Um, but what is the Christos about, right? What is the mission? What are the values? What is the strategy and the game plan? What is Jesus here for? What is he going to be about? And Peter is completely off on this, right? And I don't think as Peter scolds Jesus, some of us may be thinking, oh, Jesus feels disrespected. How dare Peter scold, grab Jesus and scold him? You know, as if it was some sort of a lack of respect for the teacher. Not so much Jesus isn't scolding him because of he feels disrespected. Oh, how dare you question my authority. You're out of pocket, right? Nothing like that, but more, man, you're off. You're off. This is not why I'm here, and this is not how I'm here. And so to cut out more, if you can put up... I think we have a slide here. Okay. So one of the words that we're familiar with and that's being used in this passage that is being used all through the Gospels of Mark and why the Gospels are called the Gospels is the Greek word euangelion, right? And translated, uh, the English translation for euangelion is gospel. So it's the euangelion of Mark. Right, the gospel according to Mark. And this word means news that brings good news, right? News that brings great joy. And uh, and historically, actually, this word Evangelion has been used to describe Caesar. It's the Evangelion, the gospel of Caesar. Right? And so that brings more depth, right? And meaning to the Gospels of Jesus Christ, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It, it's the writers of the Gospels setting the kingdom of God, setting the kingdom of Jesus, and Jesus, and the good news that Jesus is proclaiming and embodying up against the good news of the empire. If you get my drift, like the good news of the powers that be. So the Gospel of Caesar versus the gospel of Christ. And um, if you remember, if you, for you historians out there, the Battle of Marathon, right, 400-something B.C., uh, Persia attacks Greece, and they're a strong force, right? 
the Persia is a strong force, way more powerful than Greece. But against all odds, Greece and after the battle, uh, Greece sent Harold to make uh, of the proclamation of the good news, like we won, we beat the Persians, right? And this is where we get our modern day marathon, because as the story goes, these heralds ran 26.2 miles, right, which is the distance, the very first marathon, right, to proclaim this victory um, to the other, to send, the, the, bring this message to the other Greeks. And he ran, he runs 26.2 miles, gives the good news, and then dies, right? Like, um, good thing people don't die now when they run marathons, right? They, they can run it in maybe less than three hours. The, the good ones. Um, but anyways, um, so they bring this Evangelion, the proclamation of the good news, out into every town and village in the country to tell people what has happened and to declare to them that they were free. And those heralds were called evangelists, right? Basically, that's what evangelists are, those heralds of the good news. Um, and then uh, there's an inscription found in Prien, uh, which is a modern-day Turkey, referring to Caesar Augustus that says, uh, the birthday of Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel, euangelion, the same word, concerning him. So that is a common phrase, that's a common word attached to Caesar Augustus and uh, kind of the leaders, the leader of Rome, um, to talk about how he is the fulfillment of good news for all people under earth. Are you with me, church? And so it's the gospel of Caesar contra the gospel of Jesus Christ, or we should say the gospel of Jesus Christ over and against the gospel of Caesar. We also see this kind of dynamic in the Old Testament, right? When we read of the exodus of the people out of Egypt, it's the fear of Pharaoh, right? The people are afraid of Pharaoh versus fear the Lord, right? The fear of Pharaoh versus the fear of the Lord. What, what way, who, who will you choose, right? The fear of Pharaoh or the fear of the Lord. The gospel of Caesar or the gospel of Jesus Christ. And next slide. So I took this from the New Wine Collective website. And it, it basically, maybe you can't see it as well, but it basically uh, kind of breaks down values of the worldly empire versus values of God's kingdom. Um, and, and then I put Gospel of Caesar on the left side and Gospel of Jesus on the right side. But you can see on the, uh, the worldly empire side, fear, power, scarcity, competition, domination, Conquest, hierarchy, superiority, certainty, judgment, condemnation, tribalism, exclusion, conformity, and control. And I'll add to that violence. And in God's kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, love, vulnerability, abundance, communion, submission, surrender, mutuality, solidarity, humility, acceptance, compassion, oneness, kinship, inclusion, diversity, freedom, and peace. 
And so I think this is why Jesus is so harsh in his condemnation of Peter. Uh, because what, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to have to, I, I am the Messiah, but what does that mean? What that means is that I'm going to suffer, right, under the rulers, right? I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to die and rise again. And there's something so countercultural about that, that just, Peter just can't get around it, right? No, it's about winning. We have to win. We have to be victorious because we always win, right? We're always victorious. And Jesus is like, no, victory in, in my eyes, according to me, is going to come in this after this, right? After violence is done to me, after rejection is given to me, after um, the atrocity of the Roman Empire, the cross, I'm put on the cross. That after I die first and rise again, then there will be victory. And it's in a way, right? It's so Yoda, right? It's not in the way that you perceive it to be or that you imagine it to be. And, you know, I, I kind of want to flesh this out a little more because we tend to co-opt Jesus and Jesus' mission all the time, right? We, we place Jesus uh, and the kingdom of God or what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Christ. We tend to put those, put those things and shove it into the box of our culture, our cultural values, right? Uh, our values of what it means to be strong or successful or right, or victorious, or exceptional, right? You've heard the phrase Christian exceptionalism, right? Have you heard of that? Like, we, that's where Christians uh, cling on to the values of, of American exceptionalism and redefine the Christian discipleship in that way. American exceptionalism, what is that? That we are always great. We are the greatest. We are the best. We always win. We always succeed. At the Olympics, we're going to say, USA, USA, USA. I, right, I love my country. I'm not saying dog on your country, but there's a type of pride um, attached to Americanism um, that sometimes we take the gospel of Jesus Christ and place that, overlay that onto that, right? So it's all putting Jesus into our values. And this is what Peter is doing, right? Peter is scolding Jesus because he's saying, that's not right. You're not going to lose. You're going to win. You shouldn't die. You should fight, right? Jesus had the power to take himself off the cross and just go, right? And burn all the enemies, right? But he didn't. He chose to die. Why? Right? He chose the path of peace and nonviolence. Right? And the world killed Jesus. But ultimately, there's victory in that. And so, 
Sometimes we, people, communities, nations, have the tendency to co-opt faith, to co-opt the kingdom of God, and to place the kingdom of God in the rubric of our own values. Does that make sense? Right? And so, where the values of the kingdom of heaven, what Jesus is talking about is walking humbly. Right? Jesus is talking about uh, Philippians 2, right? Kenosis, the Christ hymn. Jesus lays himself down, who, though he was God, laid himself down, walked among humans, and even died, right? That kind of emptying of self and humility is very, 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 very difficult for us to receive, right? And uh, I think one of the lessons for the church and the American church is, how do we, what is our posture to the world? How does the world see us? Do they see a humble ambassador of peace and love, right? Or do they see proud, like, here's the truth, the hammer of truth, right? Our way or the highway, right? You must change. Do they see judgment? Right? How, many, how many times do we see Christian leaders just say, I'm wrong, right? Or pastors from the pulpit say, I don't know. I don't have the answer, right? We're kind of built to be like, I mean, like pastors are, we're actually kind of trained and like expected to have the answers up here. I'm at, I'm at, uh, pulpit or a lectern or whatever you want to call it. This is a round table, but I'm here to present the truth to you. I've studied and I have the right answers, right? And I'm supposed to give that truth, right? And yes, we, Christ is true, right? The Bible is true. Christianity is true. But oftentimes the way that we deliver it is not good, right? We don't deliver with humility, right? We don't deliver with love. Doesn't Paul talk about it? Like, truth without love is a clanging symbol. And yet we walk around, you know, right? We walk around with the Bible raised up like this, and like, I'm right, right? I'm law and order. I'm this and that. I carry the Bible of truth, and all of you out there are heathens and wrong, are bound for hell, right? You're not this, so you don't belong here in this country, right? Or in this church. You are not righteous because of where you come from or what you look like. And so um, we've we've taken the gospel of Jesus, but inlay it within the values of the empire, saying might is right. Are you with me, church? Am I wrong? You can argue with me. You, you can say, you lie, pastor. <laughs> Notice all the political innuendos I put in there. Anyways. 
Um, <laughs> um, so Peter's confession is at the center and climax of Mark. And it's interesting. Uh, a lot of us kind of herald Peter as like, oh, he's the first human being to say, you are the Christ. He got the right answer. But at the same time, in the same moment, Jesus turn, flips it and says, get behind me, Satan. Right? And that line is so, it's easy to cross that line. To go from, yes, right? Joy, good news, Jesus Christ, to we've got the power, right? Might is right. We're the ones. And my prayer is that as we enter into the season of Lent, Lent is the time for fasting, prayer, and giving, and generosity, right? It's a time of humility as we take the path and journey that Jesus is taking to the cross, which is the journey of suffering, the journey of fasting. And we're more sober-minded. We empty ourselves. We don't say, we've got it. But we're saying, I don't got it. I don't know. But I'm going to walk with you, Jesus, on this journey. I'm going to stand beside you in solidarity to the cross. And I'm and the story of the journey to the cross for the disciples is that they abandon him, right? In the last moment, right? And we can all, I do that all the time, right? I abandon Jesus when things get hard. Right? I abandon Jesus when I don't like the answers to my prayers. When he says, no, it's this and not this. And I'm like, but God! Why can't I be a mega church pastor, right? But God, I'm 48 and I can still grow a couple of inches, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> right? Why can't I be more powerful? And, or why can't I just have this now? And we, we ask God, we ask God. And we abandon God when things get hard or difficult or, he, or we feel we're being asked something that's going to lead us into discomfort or more suffering. And Jesus, three more times after this, reiterates to the disciples very clearly, I must suffer, I must die, I must rise. Are you going to follow me? I must suffer, I must die, I must rise. Will you follow me? And the question is, are we following Jesus or are we following some nationalized conception of faith? Right? Are we following a path to power? Are we following a path to greatness um, and taking a different path than Jesus? And so that's my question to us, right? What is Jesus calling you into right now? What is the path that he wants you to walk? It might not be the most popular path. It might not be the easiest path. But it's the path towards life and abundance and good news. And that's what we believe as Christians. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And sometimes your word is difficult to hear. 
sometimes your word <laughs> means uh, that we're humbled. Sometimes your word means that um, we choose a path that isn't, doesn't look like the world, what the world sees as successful or, um, or great or even good news, but help us to have faith um, that indeed your message is good news to us and give us the courage to take a step towards you um, because, yeah, we're, we're weak and we're fickle, but you, um, you, you can embolden us. You walk with us and give us the courage to say yes. And so give us the courage to say yes and to walk with you on the journey to the cross, which is the path to life. Amen.